We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. And good morning. I'm Gary Randall. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's Monday, January the 10th, 2022, in the year of our Lord. On January 10, 2002, Marines began flying hundreds of al-Qaeda prisoners in Afghanistan to the U.S. base at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Today in 1776, Thomas Paine anonymously published his pamphlet, Common Sense. He was urging for American independence from British rule. He was not the only one, but he was one of them. Today in 1860, the Pemberton Mill in Lawrence, Massachusetts collapsed. It caught fire, killed up to 145 people. They were never sure how many people were in that building, but mostly were female workers from Scotland and Ireland. Today in 1861, Florida became the third state to secede from the Union. Today in 1863, the London Underground had its beginnings as the, they called it the Metropolitan in the beginning, but it was the world's first underground passenger railway. It opened to the public. Today in 1870, John D. Rockefeller incorporated Standard Oil. I think his brother, Bill, I believe it's Bill, was involved in that incorporating as well. Today in 1912, the world's first flying boat airplane, designed by Glenn Curtis, Curtis Airplanes, as we know, made its maiden flight, and the rest is history. Alaska started buying them, as well as other people. Today in 1967, President Lyndon B. Johnson, in his State of the Union address, he asked Congress to impose a surcharge on both corporate and individual income. Is this beginning to sound familiar? Um, He asked Congress to impose a surcharge on both corporate and individual income taxes to help pay for his Great Society programs and to fund the war in Vietnam. Yes, it is sounding very familiar. Today in 2003, North Korea withdrew from a global treaty barring it from making nuclear weapons. And today in 2007, President George W. Bush said he took responsibility, full responsibility, for any mistakes in Iraq. I was less a fan of President Bush when he left office than I was when he came in. But I think it's worthy of note that he did make that statement publicly because some things did go wrong. They often go wrong. But it stands in stark contrast to the leftist, progressive, secularist type thinking and worldview, which we have had in the Oval Office and then we have not had and we now do have. No matter how much they claim to be religious, it is a secular worldview that emanates from the most powerful office in the world, the Oval Office, today. The New York Times wrote a critical or or a a curious article uh, today that was not critical. And it surprised me, to be honest with you. Let me just share just a bit of it. They published it this morning, um, just, I don't know, a couple of hours ago, I suppose. 
the it's a fairly long story. I'm just going to take a little piece of it here just to make the point that I'm making. Jennifer Nuzzo is a health expert who has become nationally prominent. I'm quoting the New York Times this morning has become nationally prominent during the pandemic. She's the leading epidemiologist for Johns Hopkins University must-cited data collection on COVID-19 testing. She is active on Twitter, quoted frequently in the media. She can explain complex ideas in clear terms. She has often been prophetic about COVID. Nevertheless, she took to Twitter to criticize herself. She said she had expected Texas, their ending of their mask mandate, to lead to a surge in cases. She said it has not. Here's what she actually wrote about herself on uh, Twitter. She said, accountability time. I was really worried about Texas' decision in March to lift its mask requirements. I'm happy to report that cases don't appear to have increased as I feared they could. I have been being wrong on this. Wow. Isn't that something? That's a small exercise in self-accountability, but it's something that we just don't see much in any political camp, but particularly the left. I was wrong. (laughs) I made a mistake. It's incredible. But there it is. New York Times published it. They went on to be sure that her reputation was shored up. And I guess she is pretty smart. I've seen her. I haven't paid a lot of attention to her, but a lot of people have. And so they were sort of covering that with their what I would call a curious article and um, kind of telling the truth, interestingly enough. Speaking of Texas, there's a recent report out from U-Haul. It came out on Friday, I think, and it reveals that migration to southern states has continued and Texas was the top destination for those moving for some of the same reasons that we were just talking about. California and Illinois, they say, U-Haul, Um, California and Illinois ranked as the states with the greatest one-way net loss of U-Haul trucks. And most of that traffic appears to have gone to Texas and Florida. It was interesting. Many of you in Seattle remember Kirby Wilbur. Remember him? He was on the radio for a long time. And um, on a talk show, I, I I can't remember if it was the morning or afternoon, but for a long time. And he was on a couple of different times. But uh, he picked up and left Seattle um, here a while back. Uh, I think it was about a year ago now. And I like Kirby a lot. Uh, he certainly has helped me over the years when I needed a little a little boost from the media. Uh, he was always there to help out. And a couple of others in Seattle have been as well. But Kirby in particular was always available to help if he felt what I was doing was... was um, <laughs> You know, it was a good thing. And he, we normally did. He's very conservative. Anyway, he and his wife picked up and, and they just moved. I mean, they're one of these people. I don't know if they used a U-Haul or not, but they moved it to, to uh, Texas. And he seems to like it a lot. I, I don't. I haven't had contact with him since he left. But I do notice on social media he's, you know, singing the praises of living there. So I guess he's kind of an example of many, many, many people from all across the country that are doing just that. This report from U-Haul said Texas was at the top of the list prior to the pandemic in 2016 and 2018, but fell to Florida in 2019 and Tennessee the next year. That Those are also uh, hot spots for people to move to. And um, But uh, now um, Texas has retaken the top place. 
And uh, they say California's net loss was uh, not as bad as 2020. But you've all said that that was partially because the company simply ran out of inventory to meet customer demand for outbound equipment. In other words, there were a lot more people moving, but U-Haul just didn't have the wheels to give them, the trailers, the trucks, whatever. They were trying to trying to, to rent. They said Texas growth is statewide, although some of the biggest gains occurred in the suburbs around Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Florida's gains are equally widespread with considerable growth south of Orlando and along both coastlines, and it goes on and talks about it from from uh, the point of view of U-Haul. So it's a very, very interesting time in which we live. But I believe there is a light. There is a light that shines in the darkness. That's why Peter wrote in First Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth. For you. John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, he said. He being the Son, the only begotten Son of God. In Philippians, we read in the letter to the Philippian Christians, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, but thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Even Isaiah the prophet spoke of having peace and calm in very worrisome times. Isaiah wrote to God's people, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. That is the word of the Lord. And that is the most important thing that I have to say today, what God has said. Talking about accountability, conservative, very liberal, female, multicultural, they're kind of coming to the conclusions on the validity of Vice President Kamala Harris. She came out a couple of days ago, I think it was Thursday or Friday, and she was talking about the fact that the press isn't being fair to her. They're taking advantage of her. They're misrepresenting her. That surprised me because they have carried her like they have carried Joe Biden now for quite some time. But she was saying that. New York Times, again, is suggesting that Harris, who is the first black, South Asian, female vice president, maybe shouldn't be complaining. They said she's been privately complaining to her allies that the media's coverage of her would be better if she were any of her 48 white male predecessors. That's how desperate this administration is. They know they're going down. I mean, they are, politically. They know it. what they're doing isn't working, but they are so committed, they are so obsessed with their agenda that they just keep pushing forward because that's what they know. That's what their heart tells them to do. That's what their conscience that has been seared from truth in many respects. I'm not judging an individual. I'm talking collectively. But that's what's happening in our country today. And that's why it is so extraordinarily confusing and chaotic. This has to do certainly with the culture, but it has to do with what one believes in their heart about life itself. The New York Times suggested that Harris, who is the first black 
South Asian and female vice president, has been privately complaining to her allies that the media's coverage of her would be better if she were one of the white vice presidents, predecessors. They say in the Times, they say, and they're her, one of her cheerleaders. They say Miss Harris has privately told her allies that the news coverage of her would be different if she were any one of the 48 predecessors, all of whom were white and male. And they go on to sort of kind of call her out on that. Like, hey, we're doing everything we can for you. We're propping you up and we're making you look, you know, like you're doing a good job when you're really not. And everybody knows it. I mean, they're not using those words, but that's kind of the the message of the moment. So it's an interesting time already just, you know, essentially a year into this administration. But she reminded us, speaking of Vice President Harris, she reminded us last week on January 6th of just how dysfunctional this administration is when she, and and again, this was a massive failure of, I I mean, I would think it is, of political uh, knowledge. I mean, I couldn't believe she said this, but she did. She reminded the country of just how dysfunctional this this administration is, of which she is the number two person, by resurrecting the word malaise. Remember when that word was on the people's lips and in the press and everything? It was a long time ago. But for those of us who are over 40, maybe a year or two or so, some of you, we can maybe remember that. Jimmy Carter, he never said those words, but he kind of got tagged as having said them. But his presidency, his legacy, pretty much became the one of malaise, because that's what was happening. That's a word that is forever associated with Jimmy Carter administration until now. So she resurrects this in a speech she was giving. She did so in the context of telling the nation on the 6th that January 6th will live on in infamy, just like December 7th, 1941, and September uh, September 11th, or December 7th, 1941, and, and uh, September 11th, 2001. The New York Post, not the Times, but the Post, oldest newspaper in America, continually in business, started by Alexander Hamilton, as a matter of fact. They published several articles recently alerting the country to the Biden health care malaise. The word is around now, and it's associated not with Jimmy Carter, but with Joseph Biden. The Post says if you're white and middle class, the push for health care equity could kill you. That's pretty direct, but it's true. A group of Oregon physicians have been pressing for for patients' home address to be used as well as their medical conditions in deciding whether or not they receive scarce, if if it's you know hard to get scarce, medical treatment. This is on behalf of the virtue of equity. They say. Far left Obama appointee, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she compared human beings to machines. Last week, she did. I thought there was more to it than that, but there is. But it doesn't. Uh, it, it doesn't explain. She was asking why, if you can throttle machines not to hurt people, why can't you do that to humans? What's the difference? That was the most bizarre thing I think I've ever heard 
from a Supreme Court justice or anybody else in a high place in government. But that's what she said. She said she she was comparing human beings in the workplace to machines. I wonder, is euthanasia seen as part of equity, which has now become a virtue that isn't? How did the world's best medical system sink to the point that we are today? We are racing toward a race-based culture, even a race-based medical system, of all things. The New York Post says, quote, prominent medical organizations and the Biden administration are pushing for rules that will move disadvantaged populations to the front of the line for scarce medical resources. Think vaccines, ventilators, antibody treatments. That means everyone else waits longer, in some cases, too long. They say if the public doesn't push back soon, getting fair treatment in the hospital will become as hard as getting into college or getting hired on your own merits rather than the color of your skin. They report how this is already in play in New York City regarding how they have prioritized COVID testing. And they use Staten Island as an example. Staten Island, they say, I I wasn't aware of this, but I I knew a pastor or two on Staten Island in the past with National uh, Association of Evangelicals, but I, I don't know much about Staten Island personally. I've not been out there or anything. But they're saying that they do. They're based there. But they're saying that Staten Island is about, is kind of on one end of it. The, I forget whether it's the south or the north end of it. But anyway, one end of the island is predominantly black and the other predominantly white. And they use that as an example of how this is coming to play in New York City and how they have prioritized COVID testing on Staten Island. And the post notes, it says, quote, meanwhile, the state's Department of Health announced that scarce uh, antibody treatments will be allocated to patients based on the basis of age, vaccine status, medical conditions, and you guessed it, non-white race or Hispanic Latino ethnicity. The post editorial board says, call it what it is. It's racist. That's pretty direct talk, but that's kind of where we are today. But it's not only happening in New York City and even New York State. As the nation prepared to roll out vaccines in the fall of 2020, the CDC called on states to submit their distribution plans. On September the 16th, 2020, the agency urged them to prioritize disadvantaged groups. This is a directive coming from the CDC, including, quote, people from racial and ethnic minority groups for vaccine supplies and appointments instead of spreading the resources equally. 34 states complied with that directive from CDC. Dr. Joel Zinberg is not quoted as often as he probably should be. He's an associate clinical professor of surgery at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in Manhattan. He says New York's risk factor for COVID treatment is illegal and immoral. You have to wonder. Now, I understand the Hippocratic Oath. It was was first and foremost an oath to the gods, the Greek gods. Believe me, I've studied it. I understand that. But in it was certain values and virtue that were obvious to writing it. And I know the oath was taken to these Greek gods, I can't remember all of them, but there were several of them that to which they were pledging themselves and their their work as a 
doctor as a physician. And over the centuries, it's been rewritten and everything. But the but the sense of, of the Hippocratic Oath, what has happened to that sense of responsibility on the part, part of the physician? <clears throat> now, the oath is not required. It was required in Greek times and for quite a long time after that. But it's required in some still, but not all physicians and all schools where they get their degrees and so on. But what it says, it does not say, I mean, you hear this quoted all the time, and I wish it were true, but it isn't. First, do no harm. Uh, that's commonly attributed to the to the Hippocratic Oath, but that, that it doesn't exactly say that. But certainly that value is embedded in this thing. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on Hippocratic Oath today, but it talks about using dietary regimens uh, that will benefit the patients. It talks about, I will not give a lethal drug to anyone if I'm asked, nor will I advise such a plan. And similarly, I will not give a woman a pestery cause uh, of an abortion. Um, in purity and according to divine law, will I carry out my life and my art. I will not use the knife even upon those suffering from stones. I mean, there's all this kind of thing in there. It's kind of long, actually, the original one. It says also into whatever homes I go, I will enter them for the benefit of the sick avoiding any voluntary act of impropriety or corruption, including the seduction of women or men, whether they are free men or slaves, whether I see or hear in the lives of my patients, whatever I see in the, and hear in the lives of my patients, whether in connection with my professional practice or not, which ought not to be spoken of outside, I will keep secret as considering all such things to be private. There was a, there was a thread that runs through this that is uh, it is virtuous, and it's based not on Greek gods, but it's based on biblical teaching before there were Greek gods. So, you know, this you wonder what has happened to the essence of this in our rush to be progressive. CDC has what they call the Social Vulnerability Index now. That ranks every U.S. neighborhood on 15 factors, including, that's amazing, density, income, race, and language. If two areas are similar in most factors, the one with the higher minority of non-English speaking population gets the higher scores and more resources. North Carolina, for example, requested that local officials reserve 40% of their daily vaccine appointments for historically marginalized populations. You say, well, Gary, I don't believe in the vaccine. I understand, but what I'm saying is, look at the process that has been put in place. What a person believes, particularly a person in power, has consequences. Few will admit that they may have made a wrong decision, very few, but some do. But whether or not they admit it, as in the case of Harris and Biden and all these folks, whether or not we see the evidence of their beliefs and we see it as it plays out in the culture. That's why I personally have such a, a burden. First and foremost, my personal burden, and this isn't about me, but my personal burden is to share the, the transforming love of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone that I have a chance to talk to. And I, I have done my best. I, I mean, God will judge what that amounts to. But I will tell you, as, as a youth pastor, I've always tried to lead kids to Christ first. That's the basis of building a life, and it is the basis of building a culture. Christian, Judeo-Christian values 
our founders, even Thomas Paine, he was certainly not a Christian, but he incorporated some of the some of the values and some of the principles that were right out of the Bible in his thinking. I'm not saying he was right in the way he thought, but even then there was a Christian consensus in America that that was the right way to think, even if you didn't embrace Christianity per se. Today we have shed that, and we have moved on, as they like to say, the progressives. When they get caught with their hand in the cookie jar, have you ever noticed how often a progressive, whether it's the president of the United States, Obama, Biden, it doesn't matter who it is, They'll always say, well, one thing's for sure, we're making progress. If they don't know what else to say, and if they've screwed it up so bad that even a fifth grader knows it, they'll say, well, we are making progress. Keep that phrase in mind and see how many times you hear it. If you listen to any news at all, it's always out there. I'll tell you. University of Pittsburgh has adopted a plan for triaging critically ill patients when the beds run low. University of Pennsylvania medical professors are urging medical officials to universalize, in other words, federalize these preferences. That is socialism. That's what it's about. And it's bad socialism because they are federalizing a racist kind of medical system. The criteria that they're calling for, patients get a score based on the likelihood of their survival, considering their organ function and other illnesses. But instead of allocating critical care based on the chances of survival, Pittsburgh has now added a correction factor based on the the, uh, patient's zip code. Patients from more disadvantaged neighborhoods will get their scores increased and they will leapfrog ahead of others regardless of the other's color of their skin, but particularly white people, with the same medical conditions. This is happening as we speak. In Oregon, physicians have been pressing the Oregon Health Authority to adopt a triage scheme similar to Pittsburgh's, considering a patient's home address as well as their medical conditions. Oregon Public Broadcasting wrote a long article on that. I wrote an article about this today, and you can go to our website, faithandfreedom.us, and you can click on that and read the whole thing if you want to, or if you live there, whatever. But doctors at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston They're pushing for what they are calling a reparations framework to offset discrimination in access to medical care in the past. So for every person who was denied for some reason because of the color of their skin, any kind of medical assistance, we are now going to permanently pay reparations for that. That isn't God's will. That isn't the principles upon which this nation was found. And I have a lot of black friends that would stand up and agree with me in a heartbeat. They're trying to now push this same agenda on our kids. He's trying to push mass vaccination on our children when the numbers don't even come close to adding up to it. But that's where we are in our nature, in our country, in our nation. Psalm chapter 8, verse 4. The psalmist asks the eternal question, What is man that God is mindful of him? And he goes on to answer that, and I don't have time to get too deeply into that today, although I would love to. Justice Sonia Sotomayor should know that man is not a machine. We are made in the image and likeness of God himself. And what works for machines don't work so well for mankind. We're different. Thank you for being with me today. It's always a pleasure.
Thank you for your support. Our address is Box 399 Bellevue, Washington 98009. I'll see you right here tomorrow.